we have a tradition in our home. Hannah, my wife, and I, we write letters to our children. So we have a notebook for Holden. We've got one for Shepard. It's sporadic, I must confess. So Lord willing, Hannah's due any day now. So it's a good time to pull those notebooks out and write our children letters. So yesterday, uh, while they were napping, and it was quiet in the house for a moment, I pulled the notebooks out, wrote a letter to Shepard, wrote a letter to Holden. And of course, these letters are personal, so of course, I'm not going to tell you what I wrote. Uh, that's how most letters are, aren't they? If you have your Bible, please open to Revelation 2 and 3. Today, we're reading another church's letters. These are personal letters because Jesus knows his bride. In these letters, Christ commends and he critiques. He encourages and he exhorts. He comforts, he warns. Ultimately, Christ prepares. Jesus speaks as a lover to his bride, preparing her for their wedding day. What if Jesus wrote a letter to Covenant Hope Church? What would he say? What works would he encourage? What suffering would he see? Would he rebuke us? Would he warn us? Friends, you don't have to guess what Christ would say to Covenant Hope Church. Because while these are personal letters, they're not private. They were written to seven real churches, yet those seven churches stand symbolically for all churches. These letters were written to us. Let's hear what the Spirit says to our church. Listen as I read Revelation 2 and 3. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. 
do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet, you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also... You have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star, he who has an ear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Chapter 3. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, 
and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered. And I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Church, let's pray. Father, as you've spoken to us through Christ, by the Spirit, give us ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, that's a lot of text, isn't it? The most important part of the sermon, though, God's Word. Before we dive into each letter, 
let me share four phrases that are used in all the letters. You probably heard these. First, an angel. Did you notice at the start of each letter, each letter is addressed to the angel of the church. Now, some people think this is the pastor of the church. Others think it's the kind of the spirit of the church. But if you look at the book of Revelation, that word angel, whenever it's used, it's always referring to an angel. So I think it's an angel. It seems these angels protect and guard the church somehow. I don't know how it works. It also seems that they represent the churches in heaven. Does Covenant Hope have an angel? I don't know. Don't know the answer to that. These churches did. Second, there's a description of Jesus. Did you notice that? If you remember back to last week, chapter 1, John saw a sevenfold picture of Jesus Christ, a complete picture. In each letter, Jesus begins with one of those descriptions. He's reminding them of who he is because like a sculptor, he's conforming them into his image. With encouragement and critique, he shapes the church to look more like himself. Third, a call to hear. Did you hear it? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Seven times. It's important. And did you notice that each time the word church is used, it's plural, churches. The letters were written to individual churches, and then they were circulated throughout all the churches. But these are more than letters. Did you notice the source? These are letters from the Son and the Spirit. These are prophetic proclamations. And hearing is a spiritual exercise. Fourth, a promise. Did you notice at the end of each letter, there's a promise to the one who conquers? The promises always differ. They're not the same, but they all point to eternal life. That's what the promise is. The only way to get eternal life is to conquer with Christ. Those are the similarities. Here's a few differences. The seven churches can really be divided up into three groups. So you have the first and last church. Those are the worst churches. And you'll notice that because both of these churches are severely threatened by Jesus in such a way that if they don't listen, they're not going to be churches anymore. Then the second and the sixth church are in the best shape. They are suffering perhaps the most, but in Christ's eyes, they're thriving. He offers them no rebuke. If you look at the three middle churches, they're mixed. You could say they're unhealthy. There is a few faithful, but many of them have compromised to false teachers. So Christ rebukes them. Now let's dive in. Here's the main argument. To receive eternal life, and I know that's what we all want, we must conquer with Christ by hearing the Spirit and killing our sin. To receive eternal life, we must conquer with Christ by hearing the Spirit and killing our sin. There's three points in the sermon. Here's the first one. It's a warning for worldly churches. A warning for worldly churches. So that first church, Ephesus, 
That last church, Laodicea, they're worldly. So Jesus warns them. Look at Ephesus in chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. In verse 1, Jesus reminds them. He says he holds the seven stars. He walks among the seven lampstands. Jesus is not some distant Savior. He's in their midst, and he's in control. And look at verse 2. He knows. I know. Every church hears those words from Christ. I know. He knows their works. The church was attacked by false teachers, but they held to the truth. They rejected the lies, so Christ encourages them for their endurance. But look at verse 4. I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. You could say that Ephesus hated lies, but lost love. Christ commends their hate. He critiques their love. Some say the lost love is their love for Christ. Others say it's their love for one another. It could also be their love for the world. And I think this is actually the focus here, because look at verse 5. If they don't repent, Jesus threatens to remove their lampstand. Now, what is a lampstand? A lampstand is one that reflects the glory of God to the nations. In an Orthodox church like Ephesus, where their doctrine's all good, they've lost their love. So they've lost their purpose for being a church. They need to hear the Spirit and repent by conquering their sin. If they do that, he says in verse 7, they will eat of the tree of life. Now, if you've been a member here long, you know that we're a church that cares deeply about doctrine. Christ commends us. That's a good thing. But devotion to doctrine can be dangerous if it leads to lost love. We need to hate lies. We can't lose love. So, friends, fill your mind with doctrine. Read the Bible. Read books on theology. Grow in discerning truth from error. But don't let sound doctrine lead you away from love. If your love for the world's grown cold, what is Jesus' word to you? Repent. Conquer your sin by loving your neighbor. Let Christ's love compel you to share the gospel with your coworkers. Share the Christ with your family members. Ephesus was in danger because they lost their love. Laodicea was in danger too. Turn to the end of chapter 3, the last letter. Verses 14 to 22. Jesus reminds them, he says he's the amen, the faithful, true witness, the beginning of God's creation. That's his witness, but Laodicea's witness, he says, is wretched. Now, they're the only church that receives no encouragement, not a word. And it's interesting because they don't face persecution. They don't fight false teaching. Yet look at verses 15 and 16. Laodicea is lukewarm. Now, how does Christ prefer his water? He prefers it either hot 
or cold. He'll have no in-between. What does this mean? Both hot and cold represent what's good. So a common interpretation is, you know, hot is you're kind of on fire for Jesus. Cold is you're kind of turned off to Jesus. But it doesn't make sense that Jesus would be commending people who are spiritually cold, does it? They're both good. What's bad, what makes Christ throw up, is lukewarm water. If they don't change, Christ will spit them out. So what does it mean to be lukewarm? We see the problem in verse 17. Wealth blinded them from their need. Perhaps they convinced themselves, we're spiritually healthy, look how wealthy we are. But how did Christ see them? Poor, blind, naked. You can gain the whole world, yet lose your soul. They needed new clothes, ones that could only be purchased at no cost. In verse 19, Christ says he rebukes them, not because he's angry with them, because he loves them. And in verse 20, he invites them, not for conversion. He stands at the door and knocks for their renewal through repentance. And in verse 20, Christ promises them, trade those love of riches and gain a reward in heaven, a seat with Christ on the throne. Brothers and sisters, you might not be persecuted from the outside. You not, might not be attacked by the devil. But how are you doing at fighting the enemy within? The love of money. Money is a temptation. It's a trial that many prof professing Christians fail. If you have enough money in your bank account for tomorrow... Are you still fully dependent on Christ for clothes today? Or could you, because of your wealth, be walking around spiritually naked and you just don't know it? How do we know if this is us? A couple questions. Have you left Christ out of your finances? Are finances to you something personal? You don't share it with other Christians. You just keep it to yourself. That's between you and yourself or maybe your family. You're in danger if you're doing that. Because Jesus stands at the door and he knocks. And he knows. He knows more than our bank statements. He knows our hearts, our motivations. Friend, if that's you, renew your relationship with Christ. And the only way to do that is through repentance. If not, he'll spit you out of his mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's point one. Worldly churches are warned. In point two, we see a rebuke for unhealthy churches. A rebuke for unhealthy churches. Now, let me ask you, who here likes getting rebuked? No one's raising their hand. Who here likes it when someone says, hey, I noticed this, this was sin in your life? Anybody enjoy that? No. 
And I know you don't enjoy that because we usually don't respond well to rebuke, do we? The reasons are various. Sometimes we're wrongly rebuked. Perhaps you've been on the other side of that. People assume your motives. They misread your actions or your words. But sometimes our rebukers are right, aren't they? One of the most loving things you can do for someone is tell them when they're wrong. That's what Christ does for the three churches in the middle. There's a few faithful, but most of them have compromised. So because he loves them, he rebukes them. First, Christ addresses them. So to Pergamum, if you look at chapter 2, verse 12, he says he has the sharp two-edged sword. To Thyatira, if you look at chapter 2, verse 18, he says he has eyes like fire, feet like bronze. And to Sardis in chapter 3, verse 1, he says he has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. After addressing them, Christ commends them. Pergamum perseveres in persecution. And he even peels back the curtain behind the pressure. It's Satan himself. One of their own members, Antipas, was killed for the faith. And yet, in spite of all of that, Pergamum presses on. In chapter 2, verse 19, we see Thyatira is growing spiritually. They're growing in their faith and service and endurance. So since the church was birthed, they've actually been making progress and maturing in Christ, and he knows. He sees it. And in chapter 3, verse 4, there's just a few in Sardis, but Christ notices it. They walk in a manner worthy of their Savior. Friends, even in unhealthy churches, there's things that God's doing in them that are worthy of commendation. Yet, Christ rebukes them. Pergamum's perseverance yields to compromise. Look at chapter 2, verse 14. John alludes to the story of Balaam. You remember Balaam from the Old Testament? He led the Israelites to join the nations in committing idolatry and sexual sin. And it seems that some in Pergamum were falling to this same trap. They endured persecution, but they fell to worldliness. Balaam was eventually killed by the sword. If Pergamum continues in his ways, Jesus promises to come with a sword for them too. Look at Thyatira. In chapter 2, verse 20, their love turns to tolerance. John alludes to Jezebel. We read some of that story from 1 Kings. This wasn't actually the false prophetess's name, but it was her reputation. And actually the church is guilty because instead of rejecting her, they received her. All for the sake of tolerance. So sexual sin and idolatry began to spread in the church. And Jesus warns them, if her and her followers don't repent, he says he's going to strike them down dead. In chapter 3, verse 1, Sardis seems to be sleeping. Now, their reputation was great. Perhaps people around Sardis thought, oh, Sardis, that's one of those healthy churches. But their reputation was undeserved because Jesus sees straight through it. There's no mention of false teachers there. 
There's no persecution. But it could be that the cares of this world just lulled Sardis right to sleep. The thing is, they look alive. But Christ knows they're actually dead. Their works, he says, are incomplete. If they don't wake up, Jesus says he's going to come like a thief in the night against them. And yet still, Christ promises these churches. How gracious is Jesus Christ? He still lays out a promise for unhealthy churches. He's committed to their beauty. Pergamum's promise, hidden manna, perhaps that's from that theme of the wilderness with Balaam and a white stone. Thyatira's promise to rule in Christ over the nations. Thyatira's even promised something better. Look at chapter 2, verse 28. He promises them the morning star. Now in Numbers 24, Balaam prophesies that there's going to be a star which will crush all his enemies and rule forever. Revelation 22:16 says that morning star is Jesus Christ. And to Sardis, Christ promises white robes, robes which belong only to the faithful. These are the wonderful promises of eternal life. But all of these promises, if you noticed, are conditional. So look at chapter 2, verse 16, chapter 2, verse 22, chapter 3, verse 3. These churches must do one thing. They must repent. They must be deeply convinced of their guilt and their danger and their helplessness they must turn to God with sincere remorse and confession and with a humble request for mercy. Churches can't walk in the way of the wicked and arrive at the gates of heaven. The Puritan Thomas Watson puts it this way. He says, either sin must drown in the tears of repentance or the soul must burn in hell. And friends, Christ always knows if our tears match our hearts. Members of Covenant Hope Church, we are in danger until Christ returns of compromising either in our life or in our doctrine. Those are two dangers that every church faces. So Pergamum should have excommunicated those false teachers. Thyatira should have excommunicated Jezebel and her followers for unrepentant sexual sin. Why didn't they? Why do so many churches not practice church discipline? Church discipline is a means of grace from God to the church to protect the name of Christ, to restore sinners to repentance, and to purify the church. You know, Jesus gave us the process in Matthew chapter 18. We even have an example of a church doing it correctly in 1 Corinthians 5. And the authority of discipline was given not to the elders of the church, but to the whole church, to the members. So what does that mean for members of Covenant Hope Church? It means that you are responsible for expelling false teachers and false professors. The elders are responsible to lead you in this process, 
but you're responsible for executing it. So if there's ever a day that Covenant Hope Church stops practicing church discipline, it ultimately won't be on the elders. It'll be on the church. And when Christ comes knocking, he'll speak to the church. Now we see that Pergamum and Thyatira failed to practice church discipline. One pastor said, when discipline leaves a church, Christ leaves with it. Perhaps the Apostle John would rephrase that just a little bit. When discipline leaves a church, Christ returns, but with a sword. Another danger that we face until Christ returns is just the danger of falling asleep, like Sardis. There's a book called The Pilgrim's Progress. Um, John Bunyan uses sleep as a theme to show spiritual danger. So the main character, Christian, is on a journey to the celestial city, which is heaven, and he faces many dangers, dragons, dungeons, but also the danger of just falling asleep. This sleepy forgetfulness leads him away from his mission to get to the celestial city. It threatens his eternal salvation. And church, the church in Sardis, it looked like it was awake. But friends, looks can be deceiving. A church can be big. It can have exciting singing, tons of programs. It seems like a lot's going on. And yet Christ sees straight through it. He sees it's dead. You could be a member of this church. You show up every Sunday. You never miss a Bible study. People think you're doing well spiritually. And yet Christ sees straight through it. Friend, are you just going through the motions? Are you asleep? If that's you, let Christ's word wake you up. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Friend, if you're not a Christian, you've been reading our mail. This is a letter to the churches. Maybe you're thinking, so this is the church? You know, these are God's people. You want me to join them? They, they don't look that great. And first, I want to just say that not all who say they're Christians are actually Christians. So keep that in mind if you're not a Christian. And another thing to note is that all who follow Christ don't follow him perfectly. Christians aren't a perfect people, and the church is not a perfect place. Just hang around for five minutes after the service you will see our depravity. I'm sure of it. But friend, Christians are a forgiven people. We're those who've trusted in Christ's death on the cross, that he actually bore God's wrath in our place. We're those that believe that as the firstborn of the new creation, he rose from the grave. We're those that have repented of our sins. We've turned from them and left them behind. We've trusted in Jesus Christ alone, and we are those that will receive our reward of eternal life. 
Friend, we're not perfect. And so you notice Christ rebukes us. He calls us out because he loves us. He's making us ready for our eternal reward for that day when he returns, for our wedding day. And friend, that can be your testimony too. Christ is coming to take an account. On that day when he returns, there will be heaven to gain or hell to pay. What will Christ's word be to you on that day? Christ warns worldly churches. He rebukes unhealthy churches. In our last point, we see an encouragement for faithful churches. An encouragement for faithful churches. So remember the structure of these letters. First and last of the worst. The middle three are compromised. There's some good and some bad. But the second and the sixth, they're faithful. And it's to those we turn now. Look at the church of Smyrna in chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. Church of Smyrna. Christ reminds them he's the first and the last who died and came to life. Now, this church particularly needed reminders of the resurrection because some of them faced death. Look at verse 9. The church was poor and persecuted. Now, it's likely that the Jews slandered them to the Romans. Perhaps they told the Romans, hey, these Christians, they don't follow Caesar. So they got persecuted. And Jesus unmasks the synagogue, actually. It's a synagogue of Satan. In verse 10, Jesus warns of more suffering, but he encourages them not to fear. Some of them are going to be thrown into prison for 10 days. 10 days is either pointing back to Daniel chapter 1, so think of Daniel and his troubles. 10 days also could be literal, because 10 days was the amount of time for a prisoner who awaited execution. And Jesus encourages them, be faithful unto death. But notice the reward in verse 11. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Their choice was between death and death. Deny the faith and avoid the first death. Or defend the faith and avoid the second death. Friends, faithful churches endure even through affliction. You know, compared, compared to many countries, the UAE is tolerant towards Christians. You know, they gave us land for this building. We're allowed to gather freely. Not all churches share our privileges. Maybe you'll never face financial struggles for following Jesus. Maybe you'll never be in prison for your faith. Maybe you'll never face execution for evangelism. Maybe some of you will. Maybe some of you will leave the comfort of Dubai and you'll choose to go to places of persecution for the sake of Jesus. 
Maybe the laws change here and we're faced with imprisonment for proclaiming Christ. Maybe some of us will face death for following Christ. History is filled with martyrs for Jesus Christ. So many whom we don't even know their names. One was a teenager named Lady Jane Grey. On February 7th, 1554, Queen Mary, who is nicknamed Bloody Mary, signed Jane's death warrant. Mary was Catholic. Jane was Protestant. Two days before her execution, Mary sent her chaplain in to see if she could persuade the 17-year-old to renounce her faith. A debate followed. The chaplain said, justification comes by faith and works. Jane said, no, justification is by faith alone. He affirmed the Catholic Church's authority alongside Scripture. Jane said, no, the church sits under the piercing gaze of God's word. Finally, the chaplain told her, I am sure we shall never meet again, telling her she was going to be damned. She responded, truth it is that we shall never meet again, unless God changes your heart. So Jane was executed on February 12th. She left her New Testament to her younger sister, Catherine, and on the inside she wrote a note. I am assured that for losing a mortal life, I shall win an immortal life. Jane was 17 when she met Jesus Christ. One pastor said, murderous enemies, they may do their worst. But in the end, they can do nothing but crown the saints. Church, let's remain faithful, even unto death. Finally, turn to the last church, that faithful church in Philadelphia. Chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. In verse 7, Jesus, the one who has the key of David, addresses them. The key of David means that he's the Messiah. He's the one who can open the door to the kingdom. And it's possible this church had been shown the door by the authorities, the Jews, at the local synagogue. That door might be shut. Jesus reminds them that his presence is open. No one can shut it. And like Smyrna, Philadelphia was a suffering church. Look at verse 8. In the world's eyes, they had little power. They were probably a small church, little visible impact on their city. Yet look at verse 9. Reversal is coming. Those who once abused them will bow down before them, and Christ will make sure of it. And he does tell them a tough time of testing comes, but because they kept Christ's word, he will keep them 
They just need to continue to hold fast, and they'll become unshakable pillars in God's presence. As I think about our church, you know, from the world's eyes, we're not an impressive bunch either. We're a small church, but Christ knows us. He knows our works. He's opened the door for us to enter the kingdom, and he's urged us to just hold fast. Church, you live in this city where the glitz and glam can blind you. Don't let Dubai deceive you. A great reversal is coming. All those who've mistreated you on earth, all your enemies, they will bow down before us in the new creation. You might get kicked out of this meeting place. Maybe we can't meet here next week. No one can kick us out of God's kingdom. The book of Revelation consistently places heaven in front of us and encourages us to hold fast to the Holy One, to Jesus Christ, because our reward is with Him. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We've read the letters. We must ask, which church are we? Are we worldly? Are we unhealthy? Or are we faithful? Because Christ walks in the midst of our church, and he inspects us, and he knows us. And where we've gone astray, he rebukes us. And where we've compromised with the world, he warns us. But where we walk in a manner worthy of him, he encourages us. And he promises us that if we want to receive eternal life, then we must conquer with Christ by hearing the Spirit and killing our sin. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would comfort all those who are afflicted for the name of Jesus Christ. And we pray that you would afflict all those who are comfortable in their sin. And we ask, Lord, would you present Christ before our eyes that we might hear the Spirit and repent of sin and receive our reward. In Jesus' name, amen.